welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Today we begin a new series in the Gospel of John, and it is a series that I literally have no idea how long it will take us to get through. I haven't finished outlining the book yet. And so it will likely end up the longest series we've yet had as a church. John is one of four God-given accounts of the life of Christ, and it is most likely the latest of those accounts. He offers the most unique material out of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John generally cover the same stories, more or less. For that reason, those three Gospels are often called the Synoptic Gospels. But John's offers some unique material. And that goes hand-in-hand, I believe, with its late publication date. This is the aged and reflective contribution of the Apostle John. He feels no need to rehash the material that was covered in the other Gospels. But his main driving point is given to us again and again, and it is this, the identity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate. And C.S. Lewis famously summarized this question. The question that revolves around the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And the options, as he laid out, are really three. When we look at who Jesus was, we know him to be a historical figure. We know that he's an important historical figure. But who is he? And Lewis says we have three options. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. For this reason, Jesus cannot be kind of important. He cannot be of somewhat importance. Because he makes claims to divinity. And his most basic or blatant claims to divinity are found in the Gospel of John. One who claims to be God. The options are either he's a liar. He knows he's not God, but he's trying to pull something over on us for some sick or twisted reason. Or he's a lunatic who truly believes himself to be God when he really isn't. He's lost touch with reality. Or he's Lord. He really is who he is says he is. And I think that is the most truly frightening, unlikely, and wonderful news. We are so familiar with this story that we forget how shocking it really is. I mean, consider this. If Jesus is God in the flesh, and he came to his own creation, and then we murdered him, We killed God. Terrible, unlikely, and wonderful news. What do I mean by that? Many a con man has claimed to be God throughout history. This is not unique. Any tyrant you run into has claimed, many of them throughout world history, have claimed to be God. This is not uncommon. One time at my old church, I was teaching the Wednesday night class because the senior pastor was sick, and someone came up to me in a hurry afterwards and said, Pastor, you need to go into the lobby and talk to this man. He says 
that he is Jesus. And so I engaged this man, and it was clear that he thought he was playing a clever game and he wasn't going to be able to be proven wrong when he said he was Jesus. But he really wasn't that clever at all. My point here is clear. Making the claim to be divine does not actually make one divine. But John's gospel is written to tell us about who Jesus is and to prove that he is God the Son who took on flesh and lived among us. And so John makes this point to us again and again, especially in the middle parts of his gospel. Jesus is God. And for that reason, Jesus cannot be of moderate importance. He is a liar who somehow duped billions, but doesn't really matter at all, or he's God. And nothing is more important. In the opening of John 1, we will see this theme, the identity of Christ, and the importance of that identity. And this was written by a man, John, who saw the miracles, who walked with Christ, who saw his death, who saw the resurrection, and much like his other colleagues, this man suffered and gave his life. He could have recanted. He gave his life in dedication to this message. Beatings and exiles. And never recanted. So today we are going to examine the origin and identity of Christ. We are going to see who the Word is, what the Word's work is, his former work, and his new work, the Word's new work. And so they answered the question, who is Jesus or who is the Word, as John describes him here. We must go back to the beginning. And the beginning is not in the manger. The beginning is not even uh, at his conception. But his beginning, as John starts us, is not his earthly life, but the beginning beginning. John intentionally opens his gospel with an allusion back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of time. This is when time, space, and matter, and the cosmos were created. And we note that there was something or someone who was there before the beginning of time. This is the beginning beginning. This is the point made in Genesis 1.1 and that John wants us to see in John 1.1. God is the pre-existent one, not bound by space or time. He transcends all of these created realities. And in that beginning, from Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1 carries this theme of creation. John is going to return to this theme of creation again and again, that God created. And this, from Genesis 1.1 to John 1.1, John 1.1, this is the next step in God's creative work, the incarnation of the Son, of the Word. And this Son brings the new creation. And all of that will be unpacked throughout the Gospel of John, and indeed in John's other great work, the book of Revelation. And so we have at the very beginning, before time and space existed, there was this character that the whole book revolves around, really the whole universe revolves around. And he identifies him as the Word. In the Greek, The word for word is logos. There's much debate over to how John is using this word. What does he mean by calling Jesus the word or the the logos? Is he using that as the Greeks did? As a reference to the rationality of mankind? No, not likely. John was steeped far more in the Old Testament than he ever was in Greek philosophy. Is though logos a reference to the wisdom of God? We just finished the book of Proverbs, and we have seen, for as we move from Proverbs to the New Testament, that Christ indeed is the wisdom of God. But that's not really what John means by logos here either. So what does he mean by it? Well, John is pointing back to how the word word is used in the Bible up to this point. 
God spoke through the word at the beginning, and he created everything. That is the most obvious and straightforward connection. The word is the creative agent that has created all things. Really, in the Bible, this idea of the word of God is used in three ways. And all three of these ways center on the person of Christ. And all three of these ways are united in the person of Christ. But really, when we talk about the word of God, what we mean is God's own self-revelation. That God reveals himself to us through his word. And this shows us who he is. It is his self-expression. And really, this centers on the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And here there are three forms of God's self-revelation of God's word in the scripture. And the first is God's word in creation. Genesis 1, God speaks. He says, let there be light. And it was so. And the universe comes into existence. Moreover, as the word of God, as we read in Psalm 19, this creation, this cosmos, day to day, it pours out speech, telling us about who God is. You and I live in a universe That is, by this way, the word of God. It is sustained by his speech. It was created by his speech, and it reveals to us who God is. It is a revelation, a natural or creational revelation of who God is, molecule by molecule, atom by atom, quark by quark. And so we read in Colossians 1 that Jesus Christ, who is the word, he made all things, all things exist for him, and in him all things hold together. This first idea of the word of God as creation is centered on Christ. It is he who owns it all, it is he who made it all, and it is he that upholds it all. The second way the word of God is used in Scripture is how we often use it. It refers to God's spoken word or his written word. When the prophets would come to speak to the people, it would say that the word of the Lord came upon them. They would speak the very words of God, and this would reveal who God is and what his will is and what he demands of us. And then we also have scripture, which is the word of God, the very breath of God, 2 Timothy chapter 3. These are his words. As we read scripture, as we read the word of God, we should not be surprised that it centers on the word of God, Jesus Christ, John 5, and the Emmaus Road, and Luke, that the, all of scripture points to and centers on Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the third way the word of God is used as a term in scripture, and that is in John 1, the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate self-revelation of who God is, the ultimate self-expression of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And so creation and scripture center on him, for he is the true word of God. But the identity of who this word is only deepens. We read here that in the beginning was the word. He exists before the beginning of creation. But then John continues and he says the word was or is with God and the word is God. Here's a point that the old heretic Arius missed. He believed that there was a time in which God or Jesus Christ did not exist. There was a time in which he was not. This is something that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons also get wrong. They think that Christ is a created being. Sometimes they'll point to the argument here. They'll they'll look at the Greek and they say, there is no definite article in the Greek here when it says the word was God. And so it should be read that the word was a God. But this betrays how little these people actually know about Greek. Greek is a different language than English. 
The definite article is not always needed. For example, later on in John 1, when Nathanael looks at Jesus and he calls him the king of Israel. There is no definite article there in the Greek. Why? Because it is implied. This is a common practice in Greek. So stay with me here. This is a crucial point. English and Greek are not the same language and they do not have the same rules. Those who only know a little bit of Greek often find themselves dangerous because they think they know more than they really do. So now, John's point, though, is crystal clear. If you don't believe that what he means here is that the Christ is the Word, or the Word is God, then he makes it crystal clear for us in verse 3 when he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So let me rephrase this for you. John says that there were things that existed, that there are two states of existence. There is a things that are eternal, that had no beginning, that were not made, and then there are things that were made. And it is God and God alone that is an uncreated or an unmade thing. And it says the word is the agent or by which all things that had a beginning, all things that were created, were created through him. So you could draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper the next time a Mormon comes up to your door. You can say John 1.3 says that there are two categories here. There is God on one side of the paper. On the other side, there's everything that was made. Which side does Jesus go on? Everything that was made was made by him, which means he had to exist before everything that was made was made. John is getting at this point here so that we don't misunderstand him. He is saying the word is not a God, but the word is God. So stick with me here. The word was not only God, but the word was with God. We have the beginning of a Trinitarian formulation. There is one God who exists in three persons in the Godhead. All of them are equally God, but they are distinct from one another in concerns of their persons. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are one in nature and three in persons. And they live in perfect communion and unity. In this way, the word, God the Son, was with the Father and with the Spirit. He is God, fully and truly. And sometimes the Trinity is accused of being contradictory, but it really isn't. We have to think carefully here. If the doctrine of the Trinity said God is one in this way, but in that exact same way he is also three, then it would be contradictory and impossible to be true. But rather than being contradictory, it's just difficult to understand. We are saying that God is one in this way, one in nature, and in a different way, personhood, he is three. This is manifestly not a contradiction. If you're like me at this point, it makes your head swim. But shouldn't we expect that? We want to treat God like he's a math problem that we can get our heads fully around. But we as sinful and limited people, we can't even fully comprehend what's going on in the ocean are the furthest reaches of space. How can we who are sinful and limited expect to go to the fully transcendent and infinite and perfect God and expect to be able to completely comprehend him in our limited minds? We shouldn't. God transcends all things. To put it another way, the doctrine of the Trinity is meant to be hard. It is meant to drive us to humility. It is meant to make us worship. Nonetheless, the point is made crystal clear here, and it will be repeated again and again throughout this book. The Word, who is Jesus Christ, is God.
He is one with the Father. And all of this universe exists through him and by him and for him. We now know the identity of the word, but what was his work? What was his work? We've touched on this a little already, but consider verses 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. First, we, as we dive into this, we need to see what we've already explored. What is Christ's work? He made everything. He created it all. There is nothing that exists in creation from you to me to the farthest star to the smallest grain of sand that was not made by him and therefore that is not his. All of it belongs to him. Every molecule, Christ says mine. This is the breathtaking claim that John wants to open this book with. And it is not optional to the Christian faith. Everything was made by Christ because he is God. The earliest confession of the Christian faith, the earliest marker of those who were in the church and those who weren't, were three little words. Christ is Lord. Not Lord of my life. Not that Jesus is Savior and Lord of my heart. But that he is Lord over everything. That he is God. The fact that we have to still argue over that over in American evangelicalism is a sign of how lost we really are. Christ is Lord. And so we see the same thing that John says, in, said by Paul in Colossians 1, 16-17. Speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is not some obscure theological point, but this is central to the heart of the faith. Christ is the creator of all things. He is God. So what is his work? Creation. Everything you look and you see, that is Christ's work. You and me. Everyone from the child who is murdered in the womb to President Joe Biden and world leaders like Vladimir Putin, all of them are his, for he made them all. He is their creator. As we unpack this work some more, second, Christ is described as the source of life. John writes, in him was life. As the creator, Jesus is the fountain of all living things, of life. By this I mean Christ has within him the power of life and self-existence. In his divine nature, God the Son is self-existent. He is dependent upon nothing to live. You and I are dependent upon so many things, from air to food to health to live. But God needs none of that. He has the power of life within himself. John returns to this point in chapter 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. To claim that you are the source of life, that you exist on your own, is a claim to be God. And the news gets even better than this. Not only is he the fountain of life, the source of life, but Christ comes to give us life, life abundantly, even life eternal. A theme of this book, eternal life, comes through a relationship with the one who is the life. This is vividly demonstrated for us in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, 
to Mary and Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. And they say, well, we know that will happen on the last day. And Jesus goes, no, I am that right now. Right now. And to prove you that truth, I am going to raise your brother from the dead. Third, as we unpack this work, we see that Christ is the light. He'll make this claim later in the book. He'll say, I am the light of the world. All of this harkens back to that creation account again when God said, let there be light. And there was light. What does it mean when Jesus says, I am the light of this world? And John says that he is the light. Light carries with it the idea of revelation, moral purity, and God's presence. As the light of the world, Christ reveals truth about who God is, about who man is, how to be saved to humanity. This is what it means to be the light, that we are in a time of moral darkness. But the light is there. He is the light of the world, revealing truth to us, right and wrong, God himself. He is the sun in the sky by which Christ helps us to see all things rightly. And that leads us to the fourth point of his work. This light is opposed by darkness. There's a cosmic war between good and evil, between light and darkness, a theme throughout the book. And it frames our entire lives. Christ is the light, but the world hates the light. He has come to wage war on darkness, but the darkness opposes him. I know that Christmas time is both a time of great joy and great sorrow. For those who live with broken families, broken relationships, this can be a really difficult time of year. It's also the time of year where we see the most deaths of despair and suicides. Christ was born and it was good news. But even as he was born, Revelation gives us this picture that that dragon sat there with his mouth open ready to devour him. That Herod, King Herod, sent soldiers to kill all the children under a certain age. Light and darkness. And so, in a world like that, I think there's no more encouraging words than we find in John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I believe John writes this not in the chronological order at the very beginning here, but rather he is commenting on the one who has seen a resurrection who has seen the darkness try to stamp out the light, but the darkness has not overcome the light, and indeed cannot. So take courage, Christian. That light is at work within you. That light that the world hates is at work within you, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So what is his work, God the Son? Well, that's the title of this sermon. This is the word's world. These verses are given to us at the outset of John 1 so that we might see the entire book in light of who Jesus is. And even we must say more than that, that we might see the entire world as his, as belonging to the word. Not done yet. This creation motif in John 1 is meant not only to show us that Jesus is the agent of creation, but also he is the one who brings new creation through his death and resurrection. We are looking now at Christ's new work, what he has done and what he is doing now, verses 9 through 13. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here the Creator comes to his creation. He is like a king who returns to his homeland to see it occupied and oppressed and in disordered by a foreign force. He is like a father who returns home to see his home and family falling apart. He comes to what he has created out of love for it, and he will not lose it, but they don't want him. They reject him, rejected by the very people he came to save. But those who do receive him, they are given the right to become children of God. There are not many things that you and I deserve or have a right to besides God's judgment. But to those who believe in God, they have the right, the God-given right, to be God's children because they are united to Christ in faith. This is the inbreaking of that new creation. The Creator comes into His creation so that whoever believes in Him will have new life, new birth, and that they would have a right to that. This is all done not by the strength of mankind, not by the will of mankind, but it is a grace. It is done by God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To put it most plainly, you are not physically born into these realities. You're not even physically born into that covenant. There are tremendous blessings to be born into a believing home, with believing parents, but it amounts to nothing in the economy of salvation. I have many, many friends, good friends who are Presbyterians, but blood and family lineage counts for nothing. You must be born of God, and this is not by blood. This is not by the will of man. It is by God. And that is tremendous good news. For if we are born again by the power of God, then it is that power that works in creation that creates us new and sustains us. So what are we going to take from this? Well, first and foremost, that this is the Word's world. Christ made it all, and he came to his own creation to redeem it. The Word existed before anything because he was with God and he is God. He gives life, he sustains it. He is the light and the life of man. He died, he rose again, and he offers new creation, new eternal life to all who call upon his name in faith. And so we're back to that question. Who is the word? He is Jesus Christ. It is clear who those closest to him believed him to be. They believed him not to be a lunatic, not to be a liar, but to be Lord. They saw him crucified. They saw him risen. They saw him perform miracles, and they gave their lives to this message. And what we celebrate at Christmas is this, the creator of the world coming to his own, knowing he would be rejected. And he came anywhere, anyway, to retake and remake his creation. This is the Christmas message. This is the mystery of the faith. The incarnation of God the Son, so that he might die for his own people. After our elder meeting this week, Phil sent me uh, this little blurb from Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, which is in Africa. If you don't know who Augustine is, that's fine, but he's one of the most important theologians after biblical times to the church. Both Protestants and Catholics point back to Augustine. He lived in the three and four hundreds, 
and both the Protestants and the Catholics, for what they point back to Augustine and Bell, are actually uh, correct. But what I want you to see here is this mystery of the Incarnation is something we've been celebrating for over 1,500 years across this world. Listen to these words from Augustine. The one who holds the world in being was lying in a manger. He was simultaneously speechless, the infant and the word. The heavens cannot contain him, yet a woman carried him in her stomach. She was ruling our ruler, carrying the one in whom we are. The maker of man, he was made man, so that the director of the stars might be a babe at the breast, that the bread might become hungry, that the fountain become thirsty, that the light might sleep, that the way would be weary from a journey, that the truth might be accused by false witnesses, and that the judge of the living and the dead be judged by a mortal judge, that justice might be convicted by the unjust, and that discipline be scourged with whips that the cluster of grapes might be crowned with thorns, and that the foundation be hung upon a tree, that strength might grow weak, that eternal health might be wounded, that life might die. So then, Augustine continues, let us celebrate the birthday of our Lord with all due festive gatherings. Let men rejoice. Let women rejoice. Christ has been born a man. He's been born of a woman and each sex has been honored. Now, therefore, let everyone, having been condemned in the first man, pass over to the second. It was a woman who sold us to death, and a woman who bore us life. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It is our great hope that Jesus Christ is the Lord incarnated in the flesh, crucified, buried, who rose again, ascended to the Father, and who's coming back to make all things new. This is what we celebrate, the mystery of God coming in the flesh. Let us praise him this morning. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.